And we're back. Welcome to Abstractable. I'm Ryan and with me is Lockie. The Abstractable podcast is for curious people we want to learn. We dig into our favorite thinkers and uncover what to take away from their ideas. In this episode, we talk about Michael Jordan, the life by Roland Lazenby. And what do we discuss? So we talked about how Jordan revolutionized basketball both on and off the court. We also talk about how to get a star player to be a team player and how Phil Jackson did this. Um, we also take a trip inside the mind of the most competitive person on the planet. And why? Well, to learn about Jordan is to understand how to be a master and because everyone loves learning about Jordan, let's be honest. So if you haven't been watching the Netflix doco, uh, you can find out a bit about Jordan on that. It's called The Last Dance. Um, also, Jordan Rides the Bus is a great insight into his uh, life, which is an ESPN documentary. And he's got pretty cool Twitter handle, at Jumpman23. So check that out too. Don't forget you can find the full video from our episodes on YouTube and check out the show notes, including other books we mention uh, for every episode through our Instagram page, at The Abstractable. We hope you enjoy the episode. And we're back. How are you, Ryan? Marvellous. Lockie, how are you? Good, thanks. Good. I've got Jordan fever. You're feeling it. You're feeling it in your bones. <laughs> Just like everyone else with a Netflix account. Yeah, I think the uh, I think Netflix has outdone themselves uh, yet again on this one. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, so, yeah, today we're talking about Michael Jordan, but... We've got something a little bit extra to bring because we've read a book about him previously, so we thought we'd record an episode about the great man. But uh, yeah, talk about the biography um, by Roland Lazen. What's the guy's name? Roland Lazenby. I've, I slugged sluggishly said his last name. Yeah, I, I heard know. that. It's just Lazenby. <laughs> You thought you could get away with it too. The, yeah, um, that's right. So this is this is Michael Jordan, The Life by Roland Lazenby. Such a good book. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a meaty book too. So just a it's modest huge. six six hundred and six hundred and fifty pages, I think. I know. It, I have to say, I I did read it in hard copy, and it's a good paperweight, but it's pretty bloody interesting too. I found I really kept reading it was probably the second only to Andre Agassi's biography in the sports department that I could say that I haven't been able to put it down as much are you, mu- are you much of a basketball fan no no I'm not uh, I kind of feel with basketball I don't want to start off on a on a negative foot but I kind of feel you're gonna, like you're, you're, you're going to polarize half, half our audience now yeah, basketball is a couple of things I'll say. The, the first thing is the highlights of basketball are unlike anything else. They're fantastic. They're incredible. The dunks, the athleticism, the buzzer beaters. But I think that there's so many of those highlights because you could almost fast forward the game to the last three minutes because it's always like 682 to 78 and then they're slugging it out um, in those last couple of minutes. And I find the timeouts kind of play with the game flow a little bit for me. But uh, they're, they're probably taking from the um, 
because you've watched like American football where that's 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 very much like set up the play and go and this is exactly what we're running. So they're kind of – it's almost like they're bringing in elements of that but it almost adds to mm. the suspense, don't you find? Well, yeah, I, I personally like it a bit more flowing but it certainly adds to the, the – the, again, the highlights reel I think. But, yeah. um, I've never been a big you? You, like, are you a basketball I, I, fan? Yeah, I've never been like a massive, um, yeah, passionate follower, particularly of any team. But I love the sport. I think it's an awesome, awesome sport. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those it's one of those ones that doesn't attract just attract people at the you know at the absolute spectator, you know, premium level. It it. It's a it's a sport you can play like down yeah you know, down at the local basketball court with a few friends or something. That's that's what I love about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it's great fun. And two ball knockout is a fantastic game. <laughs> are, you, are you are you king of the king of the circle, mate? Not at all. Not at all. Um, the other thing with basketball I think is awesome is that it's this is something that Craig Hutchison talks a lot about on the Sounding Board podcast, that sports are kind of driven by stars and basketball is a star-centric game because there's only five players on each team. So one person can really dominate and that's super entertaining. It's like this really fascinating blend between because you've got like the, the superstar sports which are the individual sports you know, the tennis or the, the golfers and those mm. type of things. Whereas this is an actual team sport, like five people is still a team and you've still got the ability to have these absolute superstars basically run the entire team. Um, but yeah, it's something but even more about mm. that, I reckon. Like, you know, it makes the star even bigger in my opinion. Mm. That's because because they they're standing out like um, I love I love within the uh, within the book and I think it was about Horace when Jordan and Horace were playing together and he mentions that uh, it wasn't until he made some remarkable play in their second championship run and. Um, Horace had, you know, obviously it obviously came off for Horace in, in his shot or whatever he did. And then Jordan said after the game, he's like, yep. Well, Horace hadn't earned his stripes, but he's now earned his stripes or something like that. <laughs> he's, you know, this this already already having won a championship player in the NBA has only just earned his stripes. He's got a code. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, that's something something we'll we'll talk about. So, so do you want to tell me more about Jordan, right? And particularly the to. early life, so, particularly the early life, because Netflix doesn't cover a great great deal of that, or from what I've seen. No, so the Netflix documentary we're referring to is The Last Dance, um, which is a ten part series. If you haven't watched it, been under a rock somewhere, uh, get out under that from under that rock and give it a give it a watch and a listen because it's pretty cool. Um, but I suppose this book ties in nicely to that because that kind of focuses somewhat on Jordan's life but really around his Chicago Bull years mostly and it also profiles more of his teammates which provides some good context to his life and his success um, but but not everything. 
And I also think that it went a bit light on him when I watched the documentary. I kind of felt that it missed some of the more salacious, controversial parts of his life. It's a um, big word. As well. Uh, well, you're welcome. Um, so, yeah, we'll kind of talk about a few of those too. So Michael Jeffrey Jordan, born February 17th, 1963 uh, in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, um, to Dolores Peoples was her maiden name, but Dolores Jack Jordan and James R. Jordan Sr. And so she, his mother worked in a bank and um, his father was an equipment supervisor. But they quickly moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, um, where he grew up when he was a toddler. And so he's kind of part of a pretty large family. He's got two sisters and two brothers, uh, Rosalind Jordan, Dolores Jordan, Larry and James Jordan Jr. That's quite a good name. I like that. Um, and, yeah, I guess so I suppose he worked, you know, he went to school and had a hugely competitive kind of uh, relationship with his brothers and his father would kind of encourage that. Um, and they played sports all through high school, um, baseball, basketball, etc. And, yeah, he played football too. And he was – something interesting about him was he was actually kind of a bit late to develop. So he tried out for the basketball, uh, the varsity basketball team during sophomore year, um, but he wasn't – tall enough he was said to be too short to play at the level and only his mate got in uh, and if, if you know anything about Jordan I'm sure that fueled the fire um, and so he went home that year and practiced every day basically um, and then he went on to become a star in his later years in high school uh, and he had a bunch of 40 point games and he grew yeah 10 centimeters <laughs> over the following summer after he got rejected. And so he started to get attention from a lot of colleges and that sort of thing and he was uh, selected to play in the 1981 McDonald's All-American game where he scored 30 points. So he really started to establish himself as one of the good, really good younger players in the country at that point in time. Yeah, certainly, certainly he had a... He had such a fascinating upbringing, right? And it goes back to uh, this like deep heritage, which didn't just come. It's like a multi generational heritage where he's um, they had a, a close upbringing, even with his grandparents who who lived across the road and um, and were part of helping helping bring them up. So tied in with all that was this really tough, tough, you know generations of um moonshiners and uh i can't remember what they used to call them but people would like ferry ferry things along the various um the wetlands and rivers and they got paid nothing and it was wow it was real tough 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 job and so for them to get to the point of actually having a property was this real work ethic hadn't come through and that kind of shone through the rest of uh the way in which they were brought up and the values they were brought up on, which was this, you know, almost like this work hard, play hard um, mentality, which is um, very, very, very interesting. So 
those those early years had a massive, massive influence on him, no doubt. Yeah, huge work ethic. Yeah, and they also Jordan's parents uh, they were quite humble, very very reserved. And then when you look at say Jordan, who's this very very outgoing, overly confident. Um, person but he also had these virtues within him to you know um to focus on what was important and to focus on what he wanted to focus on and i i I just find it so fascinating that he kind of broke out of this broke out of this this shell from being raised as being so so humble and so reserved yeah, it's it's kind of like he just had this, I guess at the start when you see him interviewed early days, he's pretty reserved. But you get him on a you know, onto a basketball court and he has to be the alpha dog. In fact, in any competition, he will not want to lose. He's the most competitive person I've ever read about. Um so much so that you know, in college, they'd be having putting games in the in the corridor, and um, Jordan had never played golf before at that time. I think this is one of his college roommates in the book talks about how he'd beat him at putting, and then he'd come back two days later, and Jordan had practiced like you know for hours and hours and hours so that he could be competitive in this in this sort of hallway game. And there's another interesting one in the documentary where they're throwing coins against the wall, trying to hit a patch of um, particular colour patch on the <laughs> on the carpet, and you can see the competitiveness in him. Uh, in that point, he just cannot have fun. <laughs> in that instance, he must win. To him, that is fun, I guess. Yeah, I think that is his fun. Yeah. Winning, winning is where it gets fun for him. Yeah, and and just seeing how far how far he can kind of push it and and how hard he takes it is where where he s- seems to see that there's the fun in it. I think Magic Johnson um, was noted as saying that he thought he was the most competitive person on the earth until he met Michael Jordan and he realized he was nowhere <laughs> near it. Yeah, it's and it's there's some interesting insights into how he kind of motivates himself uh, as well that we can get into. Um, are you are you a sports fan? I I'm not a massive like spectator uh, of sports. Uh, no, so yep. I'd like I'm not I'm not overly obsessed with any one team. I'm a I'm a Collingwood AFL supporter, which. I think I've just polarised the other half of our audience now, which you've done for the basketball there go, earlier. There you go, three quarters of our listeners. Yep, go on. So, um, <laughs> and uh, I was not a fan. I was a fan of a fan of the Lakers um, in in the NBA, but I think that was more cool. of a, a bandwagoning more than anything else. So, but I yeah. I love I love to watch. You know, just to yeah, just yeah. You go. That's cool. Yeah, because I don't actually think we've ever talked about sport out of no. so many conversations we've had. What about you? 
by the way, Matt. Um, yeah, I, I'm a big sports fan. So it's like a big part of my life, mainly AFL. Um, and I grew up playing team sports, so cricket, footy, soccer, a lot of soccer. And it's kind of played a big role in my life. And I follow the Richmond Tigers but I follow them very strongly. Like I'll watch football, you know, I, I, I'm i not like crazy but I care. I care about the outcome to the point where I'm very stressed before, during and probably are annoyed after the game. And I think it's just got to do with perhaps the way you're brought up. But um, You sound like every other Tiger supporter. <laughs> yeah. But I often find myself thinking, why do I care about this? You know? Mm. It doesn't make sense, but I do. So It's belonging. You're belonging to a tribe. Yeah. yeah. I think that's I think that's a big big part and, of it. Yeah, and fond family memories too, probably. I think mm. so. Well you, you you kind of join you become baptized into the tribe of, say, Richmond or a football team or whatever the the sport is local, most popular in your country or family and you become baptised in and that's your welcoming to the tribe. And what's mm. what I what interests me is that quite often there'll be big divides in families just over sports teams. You might have one half of the family barragging for – so in our family yeah. it's uh, – in AFL context, it's half of the family is Richmond and the other half is Collingwood. And so there's a mm, massive – tough. And that's a that's a big a big showdown, as you can imagine. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess sport. It's interesting. Like it can, in my mind, it can really it teaches you a lot of things, but it also represents a lot of interesting social dynamics in the way people support it and the type of games we follow and what we care about in those games. Um, yeah, and and sport like I, I I said before that I wasn't a fan of sport. I like to play sports. I don't. I'm, I'm not. I'm just not a massive spectator. So I used yep. to love playing basketball. Yeah, back in school. Yeah, wasn't any good at all. But love being That's out, on the, nice. out on the court. You kind of just you can just do it. You know, it's fun. Yeah, uh, it's you all, don't it's have all to be it. amazing. And uh, so I was trying to find the name of a book that. I wanted to read, which I'll have to put in the show notes that kind of talks about, you know, the the different psychological meanings behind sport and what the different games represent and, you know, why we care so much about sportsmanship or different ways you act during sports games. Well, it's, it's our new, it's our like, it's our 20, 20th, 21st century form of war, is it not? It's got to be something to do with that or... There's a battle element or a hunting element to it. Um, Particularly when you watch a- Jordan, like yeah. you, you look at you look at him, and and I, my mind just casts back to like you know Russell Crowe in Gladiator or something. Just this guy that he's not going to lose. He's he's literally no. going to win no matter what happens. Yeah, there's heroes, um, and there's also how you treat people is very important in sport. And I think that's got to do with teaching people about social etiquettes and the way to try and 
you know, live a life. I think it's kind of as deep as that. So he um, he had some pretty uh, influential uh, characters in his time at college too, mate, to influence him how to live his life. Yeah, so he, he got offers from a bunch of colleges, including Duke, North, South Carolina, Syracuse and Virginia. Um, but in 90, 90, 1981, uh, he took a basketball scholarship to the University of North Carolina. Uh, where he majored in cultural geography. I'm sure he spent a lot of time looking at that. <laughs> um, but the, probably this biggest impact on his life at that time was Coach Dean Smith and the teachings that he had and this formative part of his career. Um, and he taught him sort of this team-oriented system of playing and no one was kind of bigger than the team sort of thing. There wasn't too much flashiness in the way they played, and it was it was very kind of I suppose uh, I don't know systemized. Maybe that's the word. Yeah, it was it was you know all for one, one for all. It was all the team. It was the team is greater than anything else uh, in here, and so much so that they were banned basically from dunking during basketball games. So. If if any player on the team dunked the ball, the them and the rest of the team would be punished. Um, or in a showy way, they still had dunks and things, but they were of the moment. They, but if it was like a big slam down for, you know, just for the excess of having a slam down, um, Dean Smith didn't agree with that. So they would be yeah. punished, and then he would have that have to the player would have to report to him in his office and explain why he did it and. So, so interesting. It is, isn't it? Um, and so he made the game-winning jump shot in the 82 championship game against Georgetown where Patrick Ewing, who he'd faced later in his career, was playing. And he said that was the first major turning point in his basketball career. So I believe this was the point where he said, I became Michael Jordan, not Mike Jordan. This is the shot, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, I think this is where he really started believing he could do anything, you know. Uh, and so he won a bunch of awards, Player of the Year awards, um, the Naismith and, and the like, and he decided to leave college one year early. He scheduled graduation and entered the 1984 uh, NBA draft. And so... The Bulls actually selected him third. Oh, just jumping in there, mate. Um, you're talking about yeah. Dean, Dean, Dean Smith, right? Um, and the team. Dean Smith was also very rare to let players try and seek out NBA or, you know, join the NBA uh, until they were ready. And it was only once the player had become bigger than the system where he would go, all right, you know, he's put he put them in the, yes, he's, this guy is well and truly ready. He's grown bigger than the system itself. And then he would go out of his way to try and scope, scout out the best and possible um, hmm. options for them. Yeah, that's really interesting because he really was a mentor to Jordan and Jordan really loved him as like a second father almost. And I think during his career he went back and 
you know sought guidance from him at times yeah. yeah absolutely and he he always he was even a decade on when he was you know this one of the biggest people in the world essentially uh certainly on the sports stage he would still think back on dean smith or how would dean smith look at me in this particular situation or um because dean smith placed a big focus on defense rather than offense or more weight towards defense if dean smith was in the crowd or he knew dean smith was watching the game he would focus on his defense and stop focusing on his offense as much that game and so you'd have a low scoring jordan game but his defense would be solid well, he won Defensive Player of the Year a few times. Um, and so he, he was certainly an all-rounder. Um, yeah. And so after leaving, deciding to leave college, he signed a deal with Nike. And so it, I think this is around the time David Falk came in, who gets a bit much bigger run in the book than in the documentary. And this guy actually had a huge influence on Jordan's life. And Nike threw everything at him. And you can read more about this in uh, Shoe Dog um, by Phil Phil Knight, which is an excellent book that we'll do here as well. And there's some other touch points you can, we'll litter throughout where you can kind of find other references to Jordan as well. And another one here I would recommend is um, Abstract on the, there's a, uh, a, a, a Netflix series called Abstract and in season one they interview the shoe designer who worked a lot with uh, with Jordan and it's a kind of a really interesting insight into how they designed a lot of his signature shoes too. Hmm. You get the full uh, ecosystem, eh? Yeah, but they offered him a huge deal for the time, which is nothing now, but what a smart thing. Yeah, but it was... It was pushed by well, – so what's his name? Carl? Well, David know. Falk is his, his uh, agent. Uh, yes. And I think that on the other side there was sort of a representative from Nike that was kind of pushing it too. And anyway, they he they reckon he earns about $40 million from endorsements every year even now. Um, and obviously Air Jordans launched Nike into a different stratosphere. Yeah, because that that guy, the the representative over at Nike, is, yeah, it was Carl. He he basically laid his entire job on the line. And said because what they did prior to Jordan, um, the situation with Jordan is they might have a two million dollar pool, for example, of money, and they would kind of spread it, disperse it amongst all the various college players uh, coming through to the NBA or those sitting in in college whereas he just said he somehow convinced or even i don't even think he convinced phil knight i think he just went and did it without even (laughs) proper approval and put the two whatever it was million dollars straight into jordan and said we've got to do this we've got to back him this guy's going to change everything and so this this started to actually change the entire ecosystem of how sports players would be backed and how the brands would be perceived you know the superstars representing the brands rather than you know getting as many touch points out into the ecosystem as what the the previous approach was star power yeah they could see something couldn't they 
but it's what led them to you know making just a shoe just solely dedicated to to Jordan um you know the Air Jordans and now people just walk around today and say you know I'm just going to go get a set of Jordans on the weekend but that has a long long history of where it came from and it's it's incredible it's genius um at least in in hindsight anyhow um so he had a lot of backers, you know, he had some help along the way that people believed in him and kind of pushed him along, right? His father was a massive influence on him, but even beyond that, probably people took him up uh, and lifted him up with them. Mm. There was, particularly going through college, the, you have those just, those little ghosts that sit on the stands and, you know, follow people around and whatever. And so there was one... Uh, I think it was Garfinkel, and he named him. You know, this is this is as he was coming into the end of his college time. Was naming him the top ten national prospects in high school. Um, There's Brett en- Eninger. Uh, he said he's second best in, in nationally player, hmm. and Bob Gibbons actually saying that he was the best player nationally, which is like, uh, yeah. But you would have to say it was close at the time. He wasn't Jordan as we knew Jordan. He had a lot of more improvement to go, you know. I think throughout his career he was a late bloomer physically, I think, even at this point because he really accelerated once he got to the NBA. So then he joined the Bulls. He did. So he joined the Bulls. And, look, he started strong. Like in his rookie year, he averaged like 28 points uh, and he took the team from winning 35% of the games in the previous three seasons to playoff contenders. So as soon as he turned up to preseason, his energy just stood people up, you know, and it was clear he was the best player on the team after like the first three, you know, pre-season sessions. And people were just starting to say, hey, something special is happening here. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I guess it's kind of where he really starts fitting in with the Bulls and where they start to, Jerry Krause starts to build a team around him. Who's the general manager of the Bulls? I noticed that um, in the I've only seen half of the the episodes in the in the Netflix series. It's an, just a confession, but they seem to glaze they're, over that. They're absolved. Yeah, I've lost I've lost my all right to talk about this. The um, no, <laughs> you've read a book. You, it counts. The um, they seem to glaze over the the NBA draft piece and they it sort of just looks like it just came out, you know, that the Chicago Bulls had decided then and then no one else knew about it that they were going to pick Jordan. Whereas there's all these these like massive amounts of negotiation going on in the background, which was um, prom- primarily led by his mum. And so she was, she was like negotiating on his behalf quite strongly to ensure that he got the best, you know, the best possible deal. 
And one of those uh, one of those parts of the deal was, I think, something that allowed the Nike deal to come off in the way that it did, because there's some there was some restrictions in typical deals that um, didn't allow players to do that. Uh, it also meant that he had like a longer term contract, which is where you, he became known as not getting paid much through the NBA. Sure, yeah. that's that's correct, but he was paid for everything else outside of the NBA. But this kind of goes back to his code, like, and there's been a few points where that's kind of sticking out, you know, like he never tried to re- really renegotiate that deal. All throughout the book he stuck, he stuck to that deal and honoured it. And I think for him a deal's a deal, you know. And he made that deal and it was on him to go out and absolutely dominate as much as he could for that deal, you know, because mm. um, that's what was agreed with Reisdorf. Yeah, although Reisdorf was like renowned for never, ever renegotiating a deal. Which is probably not a bad stand given <laughs> the uh, amount of, uh, I suppose, money that's involved in these things. And, you know, I think Jordan was pretty pissed off at Scotty Pepin when he kind of took this kind of action against them and said, well, look, you signed this deal. Yeah, you're not getting paid much, but we've got a job to do here. Um, and it's really interesting that he was able to be coached. I still find that quite fascinating because he's such an outsized, driven person, individual, you know, that he was able to kind of be taught by people. He didn't think he was so big that he was bigger than the coaches and the staff like Dean Smith and Phil Jackson and and Doug and all those guys that he was coached by. Um, He seems to still be able to be coached and to listen to authority in some senses, but then he was such a hard teammate and a bully to his teammates and would like get in fights with them and do you want to talk more about on the bullying the first right? year kids and well i mean it goes into a bit of detail about some of the ways he made people uncomfortable but he'd test you out you know so you'd come to training and this is when he was like michael jordan you know the real deal the best player to ever live you'd come to training and he'd pick on you first session. So he'd see you out, you're playing your team, you know, your practice matches or whatever, and he would just try and humiliate you until he got a rise out of you. And if you rose to him and said, you know, fuck off, Michael, or whatever, and stood up to him, he'd be like, all right, I respect you now, right? He no, wanted you don't, to see you don't, if you, you had don't, any fight in you. He'd only respect you if, if you could play well and you... Yes, and you did that. Sorry. <laughs> if you were useless, just get stuffed, you know. And he, his way of being teammate was to just intimidate others into being better. <laughs> and it, it so was, they were, there's this constant dynamic of they're all terrified of him and kind of hate him. But he's such a god on the field or on the court that they can't help but kind of love him for what he's doing, you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of feeling I got. None of them would kind of come outright and say it in the book or in the documentary except for in the book 
the Jordan rules where few of the players like Horace Grant, I believe, is alleged to have leaked a lot of stuff to the media about Jordan beating up teammates and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's just a super weird dynamic that he's so aggressive with his teammates but it's kind of got this some kind of weird respect for certain rules and things. Yeah, there's there's a real... I don't know how you describe it, but the, like the culture of the team was very much, it was like a a battleground, you know? It wasn't this, yeah. it wasn't this, com- like we often reminisce on our days of say playing sport when you grow up and, you know, you've got the camaraderie with mates and different things. This, this just seems like the absolute opposite of that, uh, particularly in trainings and things where it's like we – his idea was to push them as far as they could possibly go, find out their weaknesses and then push them on their weaknesses until they arced up basically. And because he wanted to find out whether they would be there for him at the toughest of moments. Is, was did his, they care like he did? Yeah. Was it, were they as committed as he was? Mm. Were they all in? Yeah. And that that was kind of his code. He's like, well, if you can do that, then I've got you, you know. And like that would so if you were kind of past his test, you were in. Um but he was uncomfortable, like he he just hated to lose. So like this reminded me of the book Leading by um Alex Ferguson. Is that he was quite similar. He would be filthy after losses, you know. Mm. So much so that you know, he couldn't talk to people for days and stuff. Like, so I think that others don't, someone so powerful in a team that gets that upset, you kind of just want to avoid that at all costs, you know? Uh, Which I think was part of what he was trying to weed out, you know, mm. if, if anything. Which to some degree did work. There were many players that just didn't make it. In the uh, in the team, unfortunately, but then you have the um, you know players like Pippen who would kind of step up to the challenge of that and just themselves transform into this or into almost like a similar, yeah, you know, very much a similar type type person and just be remarkable players. Yeah, he didn't really care about being liked as long as it rose everyone up, you know. Yeah. So in the NBA, um, on his first year, he appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated and I think a few people like Isaiah Thomas, he got into Jordan was named in the All-Star game and they felt he was a bit big for his boots, you know, and so they, they basically freezed him out during the game and he, they wouldn't pass to him and things like this, or at least that was his impression. It's because he's wearing like and a full a full tracksuit with like big gold chains and all these other things. <laughs> And they thought it was a little so, bit too showy. Big dog. And so, but he got his payback when he freezed Isaiah out of the Olympics team later in his career. So he never forgets any slight disrespect that he, even if it's not, even if he just feels it was, you're dead to him and you'll... Be, you'll get yours. You know? you, you'll feel the wrath, the Jordan wrath come in. Yeah. yeah. 
But it's his, it's his fuel. Um, and anyhow, they also lost it uh, his second year um, to the Pistons in the playoffs. So he broke his foot as well um, in the second season that he played and missed 62 games and he was absolutely chomping to get back. Where they yep. agreed game time that he could play, but he just said, stuff it one day yeah, and just well, did it anyway. Well, this is the thing. It was like the it was a 10% chance that he was going to re-break his ankle at the time or sorry, his foot at the time that he wanted to come in. And the it was a 10% chance he was going to re-break and if the re-break occurred, he was going to end his career. And he was basically <laughs> the opinion, fuck it, I went in. And the way he looked at it, it was like, well, there's a 90% chance that I'm not going to break my ankle. And if we're going to take the uh, the insights from, say, the Black Swan or Nassim Taleb, is it's probably a pretty poor decision to make uh, because of the <laughs> yeah because of the tail risk. Absolutely, um, but he did it anyway, and he scored 62 points in one game when he came back in the, against the Celtics in the playoffs where Larry Bird was playing, uh, another great player. So. But, 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 he, but he listened. He listened, right? He actually listened to because he he had a seven minute curfew put on him per half per half, I think. And mm. it was in one of these games that was on, you know, it was you know point in point. There were it was down to the last the last score. There was thirty seconds left on the clock. Jordan's timer had come off. They subbed him out, and he actually, you know, for him to actually go off without making. He looked fuming, but without making any complaints and, you know, kind of following orders is remarkable, I thought. Yeah, I agree. And But I guess this is where things really started to get tense between him and Jerry Krause uh, and the upper management of the Bulls and this kind of, yeah, this hatred for Jerry and he became one of Jordan's enemies. And there's a really interesting yin and yang between these two guys because Jerry was also a very strong character who was trying to build a team and Jordan thought he knew everything his way but I believe that without them both pulling hard and kind of hating each other, you wouldn't have got this greatness around him because I think at this time as they were losing in the playoffs, Jordan was starting to realise that he needed to have a great team around him. He couldn't just win it himself, at least not yet. So what do you think about Krause? What's your what's your take on him, Lockie? I think he was probably a bit of an asshole. But I think you I think he was perfect for the job. Um, and I think he kind of is a bit of an easy target. Because you know, the great teams, and you see this in AFL too, they move great players on for the better of the team and it lasts longer. Um, and he definitely, like he didn't do that with Michael obviously because that would be complete madness, but he did uh, kind of switch the players up around him and was looking to, you know, make smart decisions for the long term, I think. Yeah. he. What do you think? He was focused on... 
getting, you know, the the perfect mix together, but not just the perfect mix for now, the perfect mix that we can then sustain, which is where this big debacle came in about rebuilding, you know, breaking the entire team up and rebuilding it because they were all, all these star players were starting to come towards, you know, re- potential retiring ages. Uh, mm. Yeah, and you could see at the end of the Netflix documentary, The Last Dance, where, you know, Jordan, he's won six championships. He's the best player that's ever lived. And you can tell he's in, he's so dirty about not, he's like, we could have won seven, you know. <laughs> They broke the team up. You could have won seven, you know. Like, just see, he was still he's still filthy about that. But the the issue the issue with Jordan is he would have he would have done that at seven. He was said we could have won eight. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like sure it would have came, just kept going. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, so it was sort of eighty seven, eighty eight. He lost to the Pistons, and yeah, I think that. That's when they sort of changed coaches and this is around the time that someone Jerry Krause had brought in, Tex Winter, who had been with the previous coach, Doug Collins, and had Jerry's been saying, use Tex, use Tex's basketball offense, you know. And anyway, he he sort of saw Phil and brought Phil in as a as an assistant coach then gave him the coaching role and said, you can coach, but listen to this bloke. And this guy, Tex Winter, had come up with this triangle offense. And it's kind of touched on in the doco, but it goes into detail about it in the book that this was a really uh, kind of old school but super effective and revolutionary way to kind of set the players up on the field. Yeah, we're not, we are not going to analyze the triangle. <laughs> But <laughs> just put put a line through it there. I sort of started and I was like, Yeah, oh, I, I heard is, you, I heard you, I heard you dangerous territory. I, I heard you clawing us into a into a early grave there, mate. So we Well, I'm well basically they all line up on the field in this and so you've always and you move in a particular way, so there's always two passes. So you've always got a few options of where to pass the ball. So you you're forming the shape of a triangle, is that right? Yes. Okay. Good. It's good to know. <laughs> so the um, what what? I'll draw a diagram. Yeah, you get you get us get us up on the uh, up on the blackboard, mate. You can take us through a couple of couple of triangle plays. So the <laughs> the really the really um, exciting thing about this was bringing in Jackson was like another level up to this team. So the way that Collins had coached, which was the previous previous coach before Jackson, was it was it was pretty well get Michael with the ball. Yeah, it's like feed. How do we how do we clear out the rest of the team so that Michael Michael can have the ball, so that he can Michael can do his thing. Whereas this was more of a team centric approach, and th- that was that was like. It was almost like how do we how do we get this star player to fit within this this team centric mold, and I don't think anyone else could have done it other than Jackson and his approach. It's the perfect balance, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
but it, it, dip, it dipping up a really interesting thought for me because it's it's like this it's this constant balance particularly in these type of games between you know is is it the individual that's that's kind of winning this team you know winning for this team or making this team shine or is it the team itself and i just can't imagine how a coach kind of balances that particularly with a superstar on the team and how much kind of rope you give and how much you need to you need to pull back in in letting it happen um because the, the fact is the impact that jordan had on the ecosystem of basketball is yeah it's it's never never happened previously it, it's just yeah. such a huge huge change not just not just you know from him playing as an individual but the entire the sport the branding the nike partnership everything else around it and the amount of change that that's happened you know it's you look at say zuckerberg in social media or gates and jobs in pcs or you know coco chanel oprah all those guys um just absolute game changers in their in industries and ecosystems and you wonder if they'd been constrained or hadn't been given enough rope or hadn't been given enough chance like where would that industry be now or where would that you know all be sitting yeah he he practiced all these mindfulness kind of practices before it was cool and he let the players be individuals and treated them all slightly differently which that's hard you know and then how do you keep the cohesion he was he was a uh, he was a psychologist that jordan was like particularly when jordan was making some of the the politically charged decisions or tougher you know he's going through some of the tougher times you know he'd be like i don't want to talk to phil because phil will get in my mind you know he's the psychologist he'll sort me out i don't want that to happen i want to stick with my decision (laughs) (laughs) well he's uh written a book called 11 rings which i think we should put on our list Uh, it's on my to read list on goodreads so i think we need to crack into that because this guy's a fantastic leader he is and went on to success with other teams He's had some. He has had some controversy in his past, um, but he's also, as you said, he brought in in the early nineties or whatever late eighties this you know mindfulness and Zen practices and and a lot of uh, um, Native American Indian like practices in what they did. Like you'd beat a drum, just beating a drum before the game to get their heart rates kind of in sync and going together and it was crazy i think there was i think it was really fired up wouldn't it yeah yeah you can imagine that you can feel the how much that would get the Mm. team going particularly in this like you know quiet little huddle just before the game and he's he's playing the drums getting them all amped up nothing quite like a pep talk like that and then you know 30 years on um other organizations are now starting to you know tuck into the into the mindfulness and meditation practices that he was doing back then with his team. So it was around this time that he actually got married to to Juanita Vinoy in September 89. So they've got two sons, Jeffrey and Marcus, and a daughter, Jasmine, together. So their relationship lasted quite a long time, but they started to 
well, they filed for divorce in 2002, then reconciled, and then in 2006 they finally did split um, and they had a record settlement at the time to split all of the money that they had as a family. So um, he didn't seem like too much of a family man. <laughs> He's pretty focused on his career. What, what I what I got was it was if it wasn't basketball, he was flying around in his jet to different golf courses or gambling. Yes, I yes. Did, it was, but he there was these glistenings that he really loved his family and whatever, but it, it just didn't seem like he was ever ever with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It was, um, yeah, I think that's a good summary. Um, so you'd sometimes see his kids at the games, but really that was about it. Uh, so, but this is kind of leading into that first, you know, season where he really period where he hits his straps. So 91 to 93, was, uh, they achieved their first three titles in a row under Phil Jackson and Jordan won his second MVP. They beat the Lakers to claim their first victory in 91. Uh, in 92, they basically only lost 15 games. Uh, Jordan was named the finals MVP for the second year in a row. They took it out. In 93, he was beaten uh, by Barkley to the MVP, but they beat them in the uh, the playoffs. Uh, they beat Barkley and the Suns in the playoffs that year. So, But this is kind of where – so Michael had this really clean image and, and really none of – because he was a – a really flawless media performer, really. And really none of his kind of darker side had really come to the public. And then there was a book written by, um, well, it was uh, called The Jordan Rules. It was published in 92. And it became like it sort of talked about some of his gambling issues where he'd gamble on the golf course for thousands and thousands of dollars or in these card games with friends and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he owed people money and he'd go to casinos and, you know, blow 70 grand on the table sort of thing. But then also the way he treated his teammates. And this was probably a shock to the public, you know, to see that kind of the darker side of his. The golden child. Yeah, the golden child. So it made me kind of think about when you see him, the rage he had. Mm. I would call it rage. I would call it beyond anger. Just the way that he used it to fuel his fire, you know. Any slight any slight of him, any small thing, if someone walked past him and said, nice game, Michael, you know, uh, then he'd be like, well, I'm getting you. If Charles Barkley won the MVP, then I'm going to take him down because I'm the best, you know. And he got this us versus them mentality going. Yeah, every every single every single thing that came his way, particularly from a challenging nature, was just him ready to go and have another leap and just jump into it and push push it to another level yet again. And it was like. I need to show this person, you know, I need to, you know, that was his attitude. It wasn't I need to do this for me or it was like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get mine and show you, you know. 
and he he sort of fueled up that way. But he he also obviously had an incredible inner drive. But yeah, it was kind of a an interesting insight into his mindset. Yeah, he he it's something we should. I was going to say, mate. He's he actually seems. It, it could almost be like a positive thing. Yeah, you know, it's like that that any publicity is good publicity, or you know, in in the sense that it's like, oh, this guy that because a lot of players got caught up with drugs or they got caught up with partying and um, hmm. different things. Whereas for Jordan, that hadn't ever been something he'd got involved with because he was just so so focused on his A game and wouldn't touch it. Yeah. And this was almost like, oh, that guy is real. He is actually a human. Sorry, mm, we, we complete, we've completely forgotten, got caught up in the, uh, in the fact that we thought he was a god. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have been hard for his teammates to see his glistening public image while he's beating them down at mm. training. But I think something we haven't really touched on is how hard he practised. He was the hardest trainer he never, ever took a backward step. He practiced as hard as he played, you know. Yeah, I, I think in in kind of passing through all of his upbringing, all of his high school life, all of his college days, all of his you know NBA, his entire NBA career, we've we've, we've kind of glazed over the fact of just just his absolute commitment. It was like. It, it, which which seemed to start out with his, I think, really start out with his brother, which we touched on, um, mm. going back, and he had this you know very very fierce rivalry with his older brother, um, on their you know home their home basketball court or sorry one of the ba- basketball courts near their home, and that wasn't just a challenge for. Uh, it wasn't just a challenge to try and be the best player. It was also a challenge to try and earn their father's love because his older brother was seen as he wasn't just good at sport and at that point in time better than Michael at basketball. He was also like a handyman, whereas Jordan, yeah, I think there's like it's like his father said, you know, pass me a Phillips head screwdriver and he'd pass you a set of pliers or something like that and <laughs> His father said, so just go back inside. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and so I think there was this there was this kind of gaping hole that Jordan was trying to fill with him um, that kind of started really burning that that big fire in him. And it trailed through to just how hard he trained, so much so that he would have teammates in high school, college, and in the NBA where they would finish up a training session everyone would be just drenched in sweat hardly can hardly walk jordan would come off and go grab one of the players and said we're playing a one one let's go or something like that you know yeah and just straight back into it it's insane so talking about his father his father died around this time um in kind of mysterious circumstances that again they kind of glaze over in the documentary but his character is kind of called into question a little bit in the book. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a he's a he is a 
not a not a not a very good man, um, to be honest. He's he's seen on the on the public exterior. He's seen as being a uh, a you know a very nice reserved uh, man, but he had a he had drinking problems. There was uh, child abuse involved with Sissy, I think. Um, so he had he had a pretty tarnished uh, it a, past. It was alleged, yeah, that uh, he sexually abused his daughter. I think, but everyone else says it didn't happen. Uh, but it's out there. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly. A lot more of a shady past than what kind of on the show. And Jordan idolised him, you know, as you would your father. But yeah, he's he. There's there there's definitely some um, big cracks in that in that past, mate. And you know, whether you you have to you have to feel for that the sister because they the family basically disowned her, I believe. Yeah, which is not good. In the, in the book, it makes it pretty clear that. It wasn't just allegations. It was. It seemed oh. like it was pretty, pretty, you know, well resolved, and they actually settled. Yeah, okay. There was like a some sort of settlement, I think, that occurred off right. the back of it. My uh, apologies. Uh, it's been a while since I've uh, read it. So. But yeah, well, in the I think in the doco, it's um, they did definitely glaze over it, uh, <laughs> and just and yeah, the, the impact of that. So. But again, you know, it's 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 a tough thing. Yeah. So, so then he kind of that was the final straw for him. He he ended up retiring, and they kind of interestingly they didn't push him, push him, push him too hard. But Reinsdorf kept a a little bit of you know connection with him by saying, "Come play for the White Sox," which I also own that team. So he quit and played baseball and there's a great documentary, uh, Jordan Rides the Bus and ESPN 30 for 30 if you want to check it out uh, about that part of his life. And it's fascinating because he just kind of went back to his roots and trained really hard to become a basket, a baseball player uh, starting with the minor leagues. And, you know, they say he could have had a major league start if he'd stayed at it and there wasn't a strike that kind of... Um, you know, sort of stopped uh, the season when he was kind of just kind of hitting his straps. But really, I feel like it kind of played its played out how he needed to, and he recharged the batteries. And but it's it's a fascinating part of like stopping to then go forward again. Do you know what I mean? Well, the it, it was almost like baseball was the rest. And he, I don't think he needed a physical rest. He just needed a mental break because Correct. there was just so much going on. And, you know, this, I, I can't just imagine being in this like constant battleground with him. And I can't imagine he would have, certainly by how quickly he progressed in baseball, I can't imagine that he was too relaxed in his in his baseball um, sweats either. But he... It just seemed to be the space that he needed and it got him away from some of the the intensity and the limelight from the, the NBA cycle. Yeah, it's just fascinating. The greatest player ever just stops mid-career. But it's a, I reckon it's a big part of what got him the, through the next part. 
I and agree. Look, he won three more championships. He returned in '95 with the genius press release. Just I'm back. That was absolutely amazing bit of publicity there. It's clearly where we got the uh, intro to our podcast. Yes. Good point. Uh, and yeah, he came back and just dominated. And this time, Rodman was there, Phil was there, Pippen, Paxman, oh, just the whole the whole crew. Uh, Kukoc, Kukoc, uh, and you know they just went on to win, just nail another three. Bringing the band back together, mate. Yeah, it, and this is where so he did some of his most. Uh, inspirational work, carrying team on his back, uh, you know, and where he played smarter. He wasn't as probably as athletic as he once was, but just uh, a smart player who was able to just, you know, he'd want he'd want the ball in those moments. That's the other thing. He took everything on. Yeah, it was. Um, it, <laughs> What 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 you'd find is um, there would be other players in situations, particularly for some of these, um, you know, make or break plays that had to happen, particularly in the you know the final countdowns in games. And I know myself, like just when you're playing sport, you're like, I don't want, I do not want the ball here because the entire pressure of the game is going to now yeah. ride on me. And me too. And, and and like you're like I just don't want to be near it. I don't want to be responsible for this. And he, there was actually I think it was interviews with um, even other NBA players, and some of them just they they just concerned they don't want the ball, or they don't want to have the shot or whatever. Whereas Jordan was, would basically be like, "Give me the ball, I want the ball, mm. and we'll make it happen." Yeah. Which is where you see some of these. You know, it's some of his like top ten shots of all time, and you know the clutch moments uh, of him of him making some of those shots is just incredible. But you can't you can't imagine the pressure, oh, the athleticism. But oh, I think if he I think if he didn't crazy. have the if he didn't have the confidence he in himself, which came out as being you know arrogant or came out as being overly showy. Mm. If he didn't have that confidence, he wouldn't be able to pull that stuff off because no. he wouldn't have the hunger for that ball as he did. That's right. And he missed yeah. a bunch too. Yeah, but he didn't care. Like yeah. him him missing a bunch of shots, he he would literally, that would be like water off the duck's back and you'd focus on the next the next thing. There was a famous game I think where he it was three quarters, three-quarter time or something and, you know, he'd had – 20 shots or something and and hit five and then he you know there was concern coming from one of the coaches or something and he said we'll be right we'll get this and he came out and then you know then ended up scoring like 30 points or something <laughs> in that in that awesome you know in that in yeah. the final quarter it's just ridiculous so after the nba he came back one more time couldn't help himself. Uh, he was a part owner of the Washington Wizards, and then he came back and he's spent like Johnny, a lot of the Johnny time Farnham, injured. mate. He just keeps retiring. That's it. <laughs> he just kick <laughs> one more time. Uh, but he was still dangerous, you know. 
he was he'd score a lot when he was playing. He had limited game time. One game he scored forty three points in two thousand and three. He was the first forty year old to do so in the NBA. Not a bad effort. Um, and he spent a lot of his time raging on his teammates for their lack of focus and intensity. <laughs> including the number one draft pick of the time, uh, publicly just said they're not committed, you know. Yeah. And then he retired. But he and post-retirement he's just spent a heap of time playing golf. He was uh, fired from the Wizards as the general, as what sort of their back-end manager in 2003. But then since then he's become a majority owner of what's now the Charlotte Bobcats. Yeah, that was one of the big things for him is because I think he had offers to, you know, join other clubs and different things, but he wanted he wanted to have eventual controlling ownership of a team. That was that's what he mm. set his sights on, and so yeah, the the Bobcats became that uh, for him. So reflections. Oh, it's it. it Every time you finish an episode on this Netflix series, you're just so pumped up. You're like, I know, I can't watch it at night. I no. think I've said that to you. Do, do not watch it before you want to go to bed. <laughs> That's it. But uh, I, okay. So the scene, you know, the scene in Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. Yeah. Right. Where. Indy's like he's rolled up to that that cliff. There's like the the cliff and the other cliff, and yeah, and there's you know this big 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 hole in the middle. This is after he's you know when he's coming towards the final the final room, almost in his trials and tribulations to the Holy Grail, and he kind of takes his step onto the you know he's got to like just step forward onto the bridge and make that leap, if you will, the leap of faith. I really likened that to what Jordan was doing, right? But instead of instead of like, you know, in Indy's case, he'd like he just kind of step one foot forward and and just so happened that there was an invisible bridge there that they could proceed to, you know, put some sand on. In Jordan's case, it's like he's it's like he's taken this like leap off the uh, off the cliff and then he's landed but as soon as he's landed, he's then taken another leap, and that that to me seems like this commitment that he's got to to what he's doing. Like him making that leap is going. I am all out there. I am totally committed to winning this thing. And so, in making the leap that he makes, that's going. I'm I'm a hundred percent going to make sure we win this this particular thing. And, you know, sometimes they lose, but he's made the leap. And I feel like if he didn't have the confidence in himself, I don't think he would have landed. I don't think the foot, the other foot would have landed when he, uh, when he hit the other side. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of Arnold where he's just, he's, what is the bridge for him is his own self-belief in his ability, I think, you know. Is yes. that. He kind of thought, I can do this, you know. I'll push myself, I can do this. Uh, and he did. <laughs> so he kept mm. proving himself right, I guess. Um, would, would you would you have a- wanted to would you have wanted to have that commitment, right? 
do you, do you think it seems like a, uh, a nice way to to live? No, not at all. I think it would be very difficult to be happy if you were him. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting the way he used the darker side of his personality to fuel him. I found that fascinating. I also found it really interesting how I guess his like fanatical commitment to practice was something that was very inspiring and something I'd like to take away is that he practised ferociously and always took the leap like you said and it just made him really good. Yeah. Um, coupled with his natural ability. I, I, I know I've said this in other episodes, but I'm always shocked by how hard these people work. You know, I don't know why. I just it always I always sort of feel like oh it must they must have just always been good. But it's not enough, you know. He he's he's he he's really set the bar um for me. And I I'd never I don't think I've ever encountered anyone like this. I don't I don't know if you can think of anyone. That's equivalent because no. I, I don't even think Schwarzenegger is equivalent in terms of this absolute must-win dedication to what he's doing. I feel like it's different from Schwarzenegger because Jordan's angry, mm. you know, whereas I think Arnie's more joyful in the way he goes about it. Yeah, that's fascinating. He's he's angry. He's angry in the moment though, because as soon as he comes off the field, and you know, he said he said he leaves everything on the field. So they would have big rough ups on the field, and then he would come off and then be fine. Obviously, then you get into the training gym, you're back on the field. So that's yeah, you know, you're back in the back in the hate but zone. You wonder if it does leave. Yeah, you wonder if it does leave him though, because he's sort of thinking about that slight, that guy who walked past him at the restaurant and didn't talk to him or, you know. I think that's true to a point, but the inner dialogue we'll never know. But Yeah. He seemed ha- like he seemed kind of playful at times, like he wasn't always that intense. He didn't carry around that intensity in his demeanour all the time, but I feel like there was always something there. Yeah. He, I think, well, he, I think he complimented the seriousness with his jovial, joking nature, and he'd always be just uh, having this relentless banter with people, you know, particularly his teammates off the field, just to you know keep the keep the the jive up. Um, but I almost, yeah, again, I think it's it's almost like the way his personality is like constructed. He needs to have these like polarizing things because he's so extreme in one place. Mm-hmm. He needs to like counteract that with equally extreme in another place um, to just make sure that it balances out and all works because, as you mentioned, he had that there's definite anger that comes about um, on the court Mm. but needs to have that, you know, that humour and the banter and everything else off the court and, you know, smoke cigars and play, play cards and things just to kind of relieve, relieve him. And gamble. <laughs> yeah. As a stress release, I'd say. But wouldn't have been hard to be him. Would have been hard to be him, I mean. Oh man. Yeah. I agree. I couldn't I couldn't do that. No. 
Never say never, mate, hey? Gotta, <laughs> That's it. Keep, yeah, gotta keep motivated. About it. Why not? Well, on my bucket list is to dunk a basketball really? once, but I'm not sure I'll. Well, I think physically it's impossible. I don't think it's But I fun. did go. I did go to bounce. Um, that kids thing where you it's like a bounce trampoline house. Have you seen that? It's like this warehouse full of trampolines, and one of them is a the trampoline that goes up to a basketball ring. And so I got in there, boom, dunked a few basketballs. Oh, you did it. Oh, you've, oh so you've done that. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. It was, I was, me and my friend were the only adult there. I was going to say. It was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> it was pretty embarrassing, but, but you I were, got you, to dunk. So. You, were practicing, you were practicing the emotions, mate, for the real thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to hold you to the I real thing. It, how, t- how tall well, are you? You're five. I'm just under six foot, probably five. Eleven? Five, Eleven or something. Yeah. I think yeah. you're within dunking height range, mate. So the only thing holding oh. you back is you. <laughs> All right, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah. Keep, we'll keep us posted, Lockie. I will. Good job. Bye. Cheers.